0: Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive five hundred dollars off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the De facto Leaders Podcast. Where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 117 of the De facto Leaders podcast. In this episode, I invited Dr. Mike Gaskell to talk about post-traumatic growth and one-minute interventions. So there's a lot of talk about risk factors in education and risk factors when it comes to mental health, but not as much focus on protective factors. So that's why I wanted to invite Dr. Gaskell to the show to talk about the work he's done in helping students and staff build resilience in a way that's feasible for busy educators. So Dr. Gaskell is a speaker, author, and veteran principal from New Jersey. He is the author of books such as Leading Schools Through Trauma, MicroStrategy Magic, and radical principles and in this episode we cover a wide range of topics including de-escalation strategies that school staff can use when they get angry emails from parents or community members as well as how to handle angry social media posts And he shares Jay Bear's reply only twice strategy for working through these situations. And I thought it was really helpful and really powerful, especially when we consider how much things can escalate when we are communicating on social media or via written communication. We also get into a conversation about what social media does to our brains, how it changes the way that we interact, and also the impact that it has on kids and the way that they interpret social situations. He shares a little bit about the perceptions that kids have about what is and isn't bullying and how we can help them to navigate these social interactions. He shares some really great stories and studies, including three protective factors that increase post-traumatic growth, and talks about the idea of stacking one-minute interventions to improve resilience behavior and performance. A lot of times people feel like they can't make a difference because they are dealing with complex problems, but he talks about the compound effect and how if we try little interventions one at a time and stack them together, we can find strategies that are not only effective for our students and individualized, but also feasible. When, we have, when we're working with people who have limited time, attention, and resources. He also shares some simple but powerful ways to improve attention and engagement, including the coffee house effect and the power of greeting students at the door. So that's one example of a one-minute simple intervention that you can do to increase student engagement. So whether you are working directly with students and you want to know what interventions that you can try or whether you are coaching and training others to implement those interventions, I know you will find this episode extremely useful. So be sure to stay until the end to learn about a handful of different resources that you can use to implement these interventions, including ways that you can connect with Dr. Gaskell. So now please enjoy this interview. Today, I am joined by Mike Gaskell, an author, speaker, and principal from New Jersey. So thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Uh, it's great to be here with you, Karen.
0: So I thought we would start off. Uh, you have a ton of really interesting experience and resources out there for people. So I thought we'd start off by having you just share a little bit about you and what you do.
1: Yeah, sure. So you've you really hit the bullet points. I. I'm a principal here in East Brunswick, New Jersey. I've been doing that for 17 years. Before that, I was a teacher and and vice principal. And I started my career out as a special educator. And that's probably a big part of the reason why I've focused on some of the things that we'll dive into. And in addition to that, I started writing back in 2018. And I was focusing on blogs and education journals. And I started getting into the most read sections of ASCD Smart Brief and things like that. And I'm thinking, wow, people seem to care about what I have to share. So I decided to keep writing and I've since written three books all since 2018, last one published in uh, this past November 2022. And I write a monthly column for ASCD Smart Brief. So I'm doing tons of writing and I've also been on numerous podcasts. I also have a podcast of my own that I'm going to be rebooting this summer.
0: Great. Well, I know that we have a lot of different things to get into. I've noticed that a lot of your work and a lot of the content that you put out, you have these, it's it's kind of like these guiding principles for the way that you support teachers, the way you support staff. And there's a ton of different things that we could get into. One of the books that you've written that is definitely of interest to my listeners is the one that's focused on leading schools through trauma. So what led you to want to get into that area?
1: It's funny. I put the proposal out for this to Rutledge Ion Education, which is a great education uh, publisher, right before the pandemic. So people might say, oh, you were motivated by the pandemic. Yeah. And I wasn't. Uh, I already knew that trauma was rising in children and that we needed to do something about it. In addition to that, what perpetuated it and, of course, added interest to the book and and the the research in it was that we went through a once in a lifetime pandemic, which unfortunately added to some of that trauma, anxiety and stress kids and people in general were going through. So I really felt strongly about and this is in all my writing and uh, work offering do now kinds of strategies like this is three things you can take home. And, or take into your classroom and work and use right away. And they won't interrupt your instruction or they won't interrupt your goals as a school. In fact, they may reinforce them. So those are the k- kinds of things based on research, some anecdotal evidence, and being in the fortune of being in hundreds of schools over my career, because I also mentor new principals. So I get to go see what they're doing, allowed me to learn and get a holistic picture on so that I could bring that back to people like your audience?
0: Yeah. I So I found, so with, with trauma and with just professional development, mentoring in general, as I've been interviewing different people, both people who are working directly with students and the leaders, there's this theme about how initially it seems like, oh, we want to be student-centered, but actually we may want to consider being teacher-centered. So, what are your thoughts on that? When it comes to supporting, again, when you're when you're thinking about leading schools through trauma and just in leading in general.
1: Well, I always use a reference of the oxygen mask. And yeah. if we're if we have one oxygen mask, and I need to keep you, the child, alive, I need to stay alive too. So I'm going to take the breath first, and then I'm going to put the oxygen mask on the child, and we're going to share it. So this is a shared experience. Uh, we can't expect teachers who have been through a lot themselves to put a smile on and deal with many of the challenges they deal with in classrooms today and brush aside their own personal wellness. Personal, you know, The, the wellness of our faculty is critical. We need to make sure that they're both feeling supported and have some resources. And so that's also some things that I offer.
0: Yeah. Okay. So when we're thinking about it, it is kind of interesting that timing and people I think don't realize how long it takes to publish a book where you probably were thinking about that before the pandemic. And then, and then it's published you know, after the fact, and it does seem like it was kind of timely. One of the things that came up for a lot of people is just the, the impact of social media. I mean, that is just, it was a thing before the pandemic and now it's, an issue even more. So how do you see that impacting both the mental health of the students and the staff as well?
1: Yeah, it's significant for both. So kids don't have the cognitive development or maturity to recognize some of the things you're doing online and on social media and also what they're interpreting on social media, because oftentimes that's their main news source. And there needs to be a lot of guidance and support, and there are ways for schools to do that as well. So from the kid's perspective, it's so important to spell out for kids in very concrete language, and this is pretty much any age that you hit with kids, that when they're on social media, they need to recognize the damage that can be done with one simple chat response or action they do online. And also, as significantly the exposure they have to social media. And there was a great study done um, a couple of years ago by Instagram. And they don't talk a lot about it because, you know, Instagram and Facebook are these great bohemists that don't necessarily want, I think they acknowledge that there are problems, but they're also in the midst of making a lot of money in the process too. So, So Instagram did this great study where they looked at individuals who were looking at evidence of uh being compared and and particularly women this was particularly women but we found this also to be true with with men and boys that they were about their physical appearance and then they had a control group that was just kind of sitting in the middle of this and then a third group who was exposed to very positive supports about it you know regard your identity as a person Beyond physical, because, of course, we know that women are constantly being uh, addressed because of their physical appearance far more than than boys. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was incredible to see that the confidence level and the uh, positive attitude of these girls was overwhelming when they were exposed to positive reinforcement about, you know, it doesn't matter how they look. And there was some really we've all seen some of these Instagram posts of like a famous actress who says this is the real me, and saying look I'm just a regular person and so are you and that's okay. So those kinds of messages are really powerful, not just for girls. uh, It just happened to be a study on girls, but we also then found out it matters for boys too, maybe in different ways, but certainly certainly the same kind of impact. And so that's just one example. And then you think about. Adults. So um, I talk a lot about things like uh, um, Jay Bear wrote a book called Helgeer Haters. And it's a great book. It's really organized around customer service, but there's a terrific message in there for we as educators. So every educator in the world has gotten uh, an angry email from a parent. And oftentimes there's some inaccuracies or there's a, a, you know a high level of emotion in that that distorts the logic of it. And we as educators did not get into education to get rich, as I often say. We did it because we care about kids. Yeah. And it becomes a very personal and attack. And so people have a difficult time managing these kinds of things. And oftentimes we will make the worst mistake in the world, which is to write a 17-page response defending every part of why that wasn't accurate, even if it wasn't. And that's the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is to say to that parent. I call this well, it's Jay Bear's comment. Reply only twice, Um, and reply only twice works like this. You get the you get the email, the you know that's inaccurate or overly emotional, and you reply. I'm so sorry that you uh, are upset, and I'd like to talk to you about this. And uh, you know when is a good time to do that. Now, if you notice. The person's taking this offline, whether that's email or social media. Typically, it's email for teachers. And secondly, you're offering an opportunity to talk. Most reasonable people, including upset parents, will say, yeah, I want to talk. And then when you get them either on a phone conversation or better yet, in person, they're almost always – they see you as a human being now. Before, it was an avatar. And so there was this – two-dimensional version of you that was a demon. And now they realize, oh no, this is just a person, a human being, who does care about my kid. We may not see things the same way, but we certainly can work together. And so much gets accomplished with that. Now, if if a parent were to respond back, no, and this happens too, I want a response in writing, and I want it in the next 10 minutes. That's an unreasonable expectation in most cases, unless there's a true emergency, in which case they should be on the phone anyway. And so I call this Uh, The urgent at the cost of the essential. And what that means is, is that the parent is demanding for something and we may not have all the information or be able to really unpack it in a fair way. I often say to parents or I coach teachers through this. It's reasonable to say to parents, I am not going to make a rush decision on this. I'm going to make an informed decision. And that's because your concern is important and we're going to take the time to address it. So by doing that, what you're doing is you're freeing yourself from the pressure of having to respond, which often has typos in it and defensiveness. And then the parent goes after that defensiveness. And it's this vicious cycle of emails back and forth, email wars, keyboard warriors, as, as we've heard the term. And that gets us nowhere fast. At least of all, it doesn't help a child. So we have to get parents from that. And if a parent still says, no, I want this in writing, it's reasonable for you to say to them, I understand you want this in writing, but I think it's more effective to talk in person. And I support my staff on this. And it's reasonable then to cease the email dialogue, no matter what inflammatory things you're saying and say, I, because anybody that's, a, that's supervising teachers will say, you are going to take the time to meet with them personally or talk to them on the phone. And so that's that's an important way to get uh, adults, both the parent and the teacher, away from this online war and to really productively helping address an issue, whatever that issue is. So those are some of the other things. And of course, there was a Facebook study done a few years ago. University of Buffalo did this and they were able to prove that when people get locked into these social media vortexes, these echo chambers of misinformation and everything you become less intelligent your iq drops that's a known researched fact and that's scary when you think about it so it's so important to get shift people away from that when i see political arguments online i don't engage and they're everywhere aren't they and we're very polarized like unproductively so in our society today the worst thing you can do is engage in that and people have a tendency to take debate and feel compelled to respond. You're never going to get that person on the other side to come to meet you halfway. It's not happening. So it's really not worth the energy. And it's ended family relationships and friendships and everything. And here these teachers are having to come into a classroom having a personal problem now because of this nonsense on social media. So my suggestion with social media is to cease anything uh, political and focus more on those positives. You know, it's very healthy to see... A child graduate or a friend's child graduate or a newborn baby or a wedding. Those are wonderful things that make us feel what, you know, so happy and with gratitude for other people and vice versa. Those are the kind of things that we know keep our intelligence level at or above uh, that IQ level that, that it belongs at so that we can do higher functioning things, give back more to kids and have a personal life.
0: That is exactly what I was thinking of. And that is so timely with just the whole vortex of back and forth. I can think of so many times with, you know, and again, I'm very wordy when I write things, how defensive and aggressive it comes off when you give this really long written response because they can't they can't hear your tone and you're talking okay. at them. You're not really listening to them. I think that that is one thing where, obviously people realize that technology does have its benefits, but the idea that we connect and then we come in person as soon as possible. I can even think about having conversations with my friends who are on dating apps where I'm like, the point of the dating app is that you meet and then you go in person as soon as possible. You don't have the whole relationship on the app. That's kind of what I was getting at where there's obviously the negative of, of kids being on social media with the Instagram filters and all of that, but also where there's some issue that comes up with the school and then it's the, the school's Facebook page posts about it. And then there's all these angry comments and how it must be like for a teacher who to try to navigate that where you could probably just have a, a conversation with someone in person and get on the same page relatively quickly, or at least get close to on the same page. I love that. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add one more thing to that. And that is Twitter did a study a few years ago and they were able to confirm that uh, misinformation, inaccurate information travels six times faster and farther than real information. That's another scary statistic. (laughs) So a lot of times, and I'll give you just some quick examples, schools today, unfortunately, encounter the reality that there's a rumor that goes around about, you know, was there a weapon in the school or was there an issue in the school? And then it be, it, it's the game of telephone online, which is on steroids. Yeah. It, it gets out of control fast. And one of the things that I've advised people to do is to say, look, I go to my reliable sources. I go to my wonderful PTA president or that, that parent who's going to come to me or that I can trust. Because if you build a relationship with your community, those parents are out there and they're on that social media feed, and I say to them because I don't want to. I'm not going to engage in that, and I shouldn't be engaging in that anyway because that's that's really uh, above me. That's that's something that if somebody's going to engage in, should be done, you know, through central office. It shouldn't be coming from a building level, teacher or or administrator. And so, but I can say to them, do me a favor, post this. This is false. I've confirmed this with a reliable source, and we can discontinue this conversation. That has had a strong and powerful effect on really slowing down and even stopping misinformation from spiraling out of control. And the other part of the problem with that is now you've got a whole school community who's all amped up on this misinformation. And again, I go back to that Buffalo study. Their IQs are not You know, Because we're thinking in our primal mindsets, which is the back of our brain, instead of our higher functioning. And we want kids in our communities learning with their frontal lobe. We don't want them reacting with their back lobe. And this is so this all goes into even student achievement. So you think about putting this all together and setting the tone. We've gotten some important responsibilities to make sure that happens. And there are ways to do that, to teach our school community. I'll give you another quick example. Conflict occurs at a ratio of six hundred to one to bullying incidents, and there's research on this too. Everything I'm mentioning, I'm not just making this up. By the way, I can yeah. back so it up. So you're
0: saying online? This is this is what the rates are online, uh, of bullying uh, incidents.
1: Interactions anywhere, school, online, on the phone, anywhere you're at. Six hundred to one. So the reason that that statistic is important is we're using vernacular that's not accurate uh, often, or at least you know finding that. Uh, it's children and, and families are, are having a difficult time understanding the language. And what they're thinking is, oh, uh, my kid got into an argument and this kid sent something mean to them. They were bullied. That's not accurate in most cases. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is we get wrapped up in whether this was bullying or not and don't have a chance to focus on the real bullying issues, uh, which need the priority and attention because. Kids are experiencing normal conflict because those 600 conflicts are almost always normal developmental, social and and emotional experiences for kids. And it's so important for them to go through that because they're learning how to manage things. And, of course, one of the worst things that happened to them is they spent two or three years in social isolation. So it's not their fault. They've struggled because they're dealing with having to catch up now. And that's now happening, by the way, in a couple of years, this will even out. We also know this from research, but it's been a rough couple of years post-pandemic and it's going to continue for a little bit longer, but it'll start to even out and we'll we'll be dealing with normal uh, uh, issues more frequently as properly identified as a result. But we have to keep getting that message out to even teachers are sometimes hearing, oh, this kid said he got bullied and, slow down. Let's get the information and the facts. I'm often spending my time doing that. And I think it's important for us to do that with families because it's important for them to know your kid was not almost always not bullied. They were in a normal conflict that may have warranted some disciplinary action, but there's a difference there uh, versus a, a power sh- uh, imbalance.
0: Are these ha- incidents happening more online or in person, or is it is it that... The problem that a lot of them are happening online so they're missing out on nonverbal communication or is it just that they haven't had the experiences of being with their peers just from being you know be- just because of the pandemic or is it a little both
1: yeah the answer is both uh so we're seeing a continued escalation on social media which Again, the the Twitter study, misinformation travels, this happens with everything. So, uh, you know, a kid may be under the impression another kid said something about him because a kid, a third person, whenever we're investigating these, this kid says, oh, this kid on the bus told me that. Then we ask the kid on the bus. This redheaded kid asked me that. We go ask the redheaded, no, 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 this other, and it, it ends up in a dead end more often than not. So what ends up happening is is that social media is a part of the problem, but so are some of their developmental experiences they're they're going back to that they're learning to, you know, interact. Uh we're seeing their their conflict escalate beyond what we would normally expect because they're struggling with having an encounter that they weren't accustomed to for a couple mm-hmm. years. But mm-hmm. the good news is they're having those experiences and we know because they're having those experiences, they're, they're going to work them out over time and they, they are going to catch up. We saw this with uh, some examples of this, the kids of Katrina, the hurricane back in, in the early 2000s. A lot of people don't know this, but if you look at some research on this, these kids spent at least a year in isolation and no schooling. And it was more significant in some ways because they didn't have a digital connection back then. We have much more of a digital connection. And so these kids were really isolated. Well, guess what? There are kids, most of those kids got past that and showed post-traumatic growth and were able to work through that even though they were delayed because they had that uh, limitation or that restriction by being in this tragic situation uh, in in Louisiana, that they were able to come out of some remarkable stories about that. You see that with um, all kinds of stories. We, I mentioned um, to you when we were talking offline about the kids of Kauai. Um, so I'll just yeah. mention this one if you if you want me to. This is a really sure, great yeah. story. Again, these are like stories that people are like, I, I never heard of this before. Yeah. And I well, mentioned again, them. they're not
0: global, so they're not quite as well known. But yeah, go ahead. I'd love to hear about it.
1: I think that and I think we need to get the word out on these stories because they're really telling and and they provide some ingredients for us that like I talked about at the beginning we can give back to our school communities to those experiencing trauma and and families and everybody.
0: I wanted to take a quick break here and share a little bit about the School of Clinical Leadership, my program for related service providers who want to take on a leadership role in implementing executive functioning support. Some of the things that we are talking about in this conversation include the idea of simple one-minute interventions and the idea of stacking one intervention at a time so that we can help teachers and other people who are supporting students to build their students' resilience in a way that's both feasible for them and effective. And the thing about this concept of stacking is that we have to think about the big picture and the simple steps at the same time. So if you are a person who wants to make a difference in your building and you want to support the members of your team in implementing things like one-minute interventions, you need to have a long-term plan in order to make that happen so that you know over the course of the year what your plan is when it comes to learning the therapy techniques that you need to do in your sessions, what things you need to train other people to do, and what your end goal is so that when you look back, at the course of your year, you can see the impact of all those interventions that you stack over the year. Stacking is essential when it comes to executive functioning because there are a lot of things that need to be layered in and embedded into the work that you're already doing. And a lot of times the long-term impact comes when we do tiny little interventions one at a time. But in order for this to be effective, you need to know where you're going. So that's why I give you a method and a system for doing this in the School of Clinical Leadership. There are a lot of moving parts and the key to being effective is having a plan to get those things implemented one strategy at a time. So to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, you're gonna wanna go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership to learn more about how to become a member. Now let's get back to the interview
1: this is a really neat study. So this woman named Emmy Werner, back in the fifties decided, I think I'm going to do a longitudinal 40 year study of oh, these yeah. newborns. <laughs> just,
0: let's just do a 40 year study. <laughs> Amazing.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so she tracked these kids who, there was about 800 newborns at the time. And out of those 800 newborns, they were pretty quickly identified in childhood as at risk or disadvantaged kids about a third of them so about 270 or so of these kids that sounds like a very large number but if you think about a place like Kauai, Kauai is not one of the main main islands there's a lot of poverty there and there's some other challenges right socioeconomically is is the big factor there Mm -hmm. so about a third of these kids were identified pretty quickly based on some patterns that were documented as at risk. So then you think, oh, these kids are predicted to just end up in failure, right? So among that group, 30%, that's a large number, and I mentioned this with the kids of Katrina, showed remarkable post-traumatic growth and success. They lived healthy lives. By the time they were 40, they had families, they had successful careers, they were uh, in healthy relationships, and so, of course, Emmy Werner and her team did this amazing thing. they said, well, why did these 30 percent without anybody planning it or structuring anything do this? Maybe we can learn from this. And they found three protective factors. The first one was that these kids were affiliated with a strong mentor, you know, a, a surrogate uh, parent like a coach or a teacher or, you know, maybe uh, someone in their um, religious affiliation that was an adult. And they were a positive role model for them. The second thing they found was a strong affiliation within an organization, which allowed them to be in touch with something bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. That could have been a team or a church affiliation or a club, anything like that. And then the third thing was something they called internal resilience. So then you go, oh, we can do the first two things. We can get mentors and we get kids involved in things, but we can't teach them internal resilience. Well, that's false. We know that we can teach kids internal resilience resilience it takes some small wins and some accumulative successes but we can help kids in this way so this is a really empowering thing to know because she found this massive group of kids that were successful in spite of themselves and their in their experiences around them and They were able to identify these patterns so these are the kind i don't say this is the only solution by the way i always talk about something i call stacking which means we 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 add a bunch of ideas we give a menu i always say to teachers try seven things and if three work who cares about the other four you got three things that worked you know stack them try different things with different kids and by the way different things work with different kids as we know because they're different kinds of kids so these are these three factors these three protective factors though we're just a landmark example of, oh, we do have some solutions in history to help kids.
0: I love that because it's it just seems like there's so much emphasis on risk factors, which of course is important, but what about the protective factors? What do we do that helps people be successful? So I like that concept of stacking. I have used this term as well, where I think that a lot of times, Teachers, therapists, people working in the schools feel really overwhelmed when there's this, there's this big issue that probably does have a lot of complexity to it. And I think that there's this tendency to just feel like, like, what difference can I make? And the concept of stacking, it's like you focus on this one simple thing at a time and you do one thing. And then you get that done and then you stack another thing on top of it and then over time it compounds and then you realize, you know, it's been a year and you've been stacking different things for a year and look at, look at all these things you were able to accomplish just one tiny bit at a time. So there's something that you, I've heard you talk about, I think it goes along with the concept of stacking with the idea of one minute interventions. Is that something that falls under that umbrella of supporting resilience
1: yeah, it is. So, you know, those short interventions, again, there's research out there that shows us this. A lot of people think, well, in order to help a kid or a person deal with trauma, uh, it's going to take a lot of work and effort and it's got to be a um, a counselor. And I don't minimize the work. I, I right. applaud my counselors. I need my counselors. They're fantastic. Uh, therapy is important. I'm mm-hmm. not minimizing any of that. What I'm saying is, is in, the trenches in our day-to-day work, teachers in classrooms and things, just those pieces of feedback. Feedback is a significant part of how kids respond to things positively. So when you're giving these interventions that are short, it's very cumulative, like you were just talking about. There's there was a book by Darren Hardy called Compound Effect that yeah. speaks to Jesus. us, and it's the, the, that logic that you start here, and it kind of goes like a little bit up, and then you start to see these jagged edges, and then it starts to shoot up, because once you get a kid going with this, it's it's like what well, I can go if I've gone this far, I can go even further, and it's this thing I call the remarkably imperfect upward curve which is yeah, a great i yeah. love that you know saying because it's like nothing's perfect and it's like a stock market chart you know it typically goes up over time long term but it takes some uneven jagged jagged edges along the way just like uh successes and and steps back i think it's important for kids to see that kind of success line and understand that there's no straight line because the greatest and most successful people who got past trauma and were remarkably successful in whatever they did had some major setbacks. We hear the stories about Michael Jordan who got cut from his high school basketball team and all these, uh, um, Tom Brady was a six-round draft pick, not expected to do anything like he did. So you hear all these stories about people who had remarkable success and it's no coincidence. They were able, It's another way to look at this is, Uh, the most successful people fail three times more often than unsuccessful people. And you say, well, the math doesn't make sense there. And the reason is, is successful people never give up. They keep going until they get it. So we we were talking earlier about resilience. So that's why resilience is such an important piece of this, because a lot of times people will come up against a challenge, fail, and then just stop. They just give up. And that's the worst thing they can do. Instead, they should be working through or around that. And there are ways to just keep going. So those are some of the momentum builders that things like the the short interventions, that the minute interventions uh, give, that feedback piece, that little injection to keep a kid going um, is so important.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's so interesting because if you think about it, the, the numbers actually do add up because if you think about throwing darts, if you throw one dart and you miss, and then you stop, you failed once, but let's say you throw 10 darts and you miss nine times and then you get it on the last time. So technically you failed more, but you also got it at the end. So, I mean, I think that's really what's going on there. We're just talking about learning curves. And with those minute interventions, I think that's really powerful because a lot of times it's just modeling different language and ways to talk through different things that come up in your classroom. Like you don't know what to do next when the teacher gives you an assignment with multiple steps. And there can be something really simple that teachers can do to just model and explain where they can go to look to find what they need to do or to see if they're on track. And it can just be these tiny little things that add up. Something that I've heard you mention as an intervention or just a way to kind of structure the environment and create some... I guess, boundaries and just set the stage is the impact of greeting kids at the door. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: This is really neat because, again, a study where um, all the so this was a, a group of behaviorally challenged kids. They were known to have behavior issues. And the goal was really just to get them to be more engaged. And that's a big struggle when you're dealing with children with behavior challenges because they're. They they can be difficult to work with and it's easier to, frankly, give up on them, unfortunately. So they're used to that. And this kind of a thing, if you change one thing about your practice, you make it the teacher greeting at the door. How are you? How was your baseball game this weekend? Did you get to take that ride to the park with your parents? Whatever the thing is, and, it, and this is like a one sentence intervention, it's not even yeah. a minute yeah. inter- intervention, uh, makes Such a huge difference that in this study, they were able to prove that the lack of engagement dropped from 72%, which sounds about right for a a difficult class, down to less than half, 45%. That's all they changed. Nothing else changed during this extended class of 40-some-odd minutes. So you think about that. Go back to what you were saying earlier. Stacking, you then start to add in some other interventions, and before you know it, Something like uh, I've talked about things like coffee house chatter, which I can mention if you want. Yeah, these yeah. are the kind. These are the kind of things that when you start putting them together, you go from seventy-two to forty-five percent, to maybe even half of that. And I think teachers are pretty happy when they hear that they can get even the most behaviorally challenged kids down into the teens or whatever the number is in terms of lack of engagement. So uh, I was talking about coffee house chatter. This is really neat. What happens is, is if you've ever know if you've ever been in a coffee house. Mm-hmm. Starbucks, whatever, uh, and you notice the ambiance. There's there's a lot of chatter and clatter, and people often lose themselves in this environment. I've heard people go write books, and I've done it.
0: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, me and,
1: too. You know, just really get focused and 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 productive. And there's no coincidence there, and that's because that chatter and clatter gives you this what I call. Or I think I stole this honestly. Distracted focus which sounds weird, but this is what it means. There's just enough distraction from the external stimuli that your brain is able to get focused on that frontal lobe we talked about earlier. And suddenly these theta waves, which is part of the brain, it gets clarity and focus and calmness at the same time is all engineering. It's tapping that part of the brain, which is just what you want. You want to trigger that. So you say, well, okay, but we can't bring our kids to a coffee house Right. Yeah. In my day, we didn't even let them have coffee, but now that apparently that's okay.
0: But <laughs> yeah, but it's in. But now. what we
1: yeah what we can do is we can bring that ambiance to a classroom, and you don't even need headphones for this because of the way that it it hits uh, the kids. There is another thing that requires headphones called binaural beats, but coffee house chatter is perfect because it's just like when you're in a, a large coffee house and there's all this background noise. And the key is that it's indistinguishable chatter and that there's this steady rhythm to it. That's what really taps your brain. And so you can play right off of YouTube. You just type in coffeehouse chatter theta waves or something like that. And suddenly, you know, you're broadcasting this in the classroom and takes about five minutes. We know from research that uh, at first kids and people in general don't necessarily tune into this but after about five minutes we're like in the zone and we're like really just focused and kids will have responded very well to this as well in classrooms as a result and it's important to know that that happens now the key here is i always use the example if you're in a coffee house and you're behind somebody and it's a couple and they're breaking up that's way too interesting to turn off yeah right so can't focus
0: so, on it if there's somebody having a conversation I'm always listening to their conversation but if it's background noise that's perfect.
1: So that's what I'm saying. So yeah. if there's <laughs> some if there's some discussions going on that, right. that are unrelated to the content that's an example of of that coffee house distraction. You yep. want that to be indistinguishable and so these apps play all this indistinguishable noise and it's not just white noise you know people say well that sounds like white noise no, white noise is just a, a steady rhythm of uh, like a fan or something. But the difference here is, is this is tapping your theta waves. And that's what you want it to do to get that focus and concentration for the kids. And, and again, we go from 45% to something less. And I always yeah. say, don't strive for perfection. Your know, teachers are very type A. And I always say to them, you, you cannot strive for, pers-. they want it. But I say, no, 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 you want improvement. You want growth, right? Progress. And so, uh, once they understand that, it feels much more empowering to help your kids.
0: Yeah, I think with what what sometimes people don't understand about attention, ADHD, and things like that is that it's it's not necessarily always a lack of focus. It's not. It's just focus on everything instead of focusing on one thing. And sometimes increasing sensory input for people actually improves their ability to focus on a specific task. And there's so many different ways you can you can stack like if I I would think that for some kids if they really like the background noise then that's great if they don't like it you can put on some headphones and cancel it out because I know my husband and I were always again during the pandemic when we're both trying to figure out how to work at home which we're both still working at home now but we have different things that distract us so it's like one person wants the music on one person doesn't so there's so many different ways you can stack two things together and make it work for one person and also work for another person who needs some kind of different sensory input. So.
1: Yeah. And you, you, you talked about putting headphones on. So there's actually a very strategic way to do that. Yeah. And so there's this thing called binaural beats and I'll just give you the, the quick, quick version of this. So this is really neat because different than coffee house chatter, which can be a a whole room thing, this is going to be independent work. So if your kids are working on a, project or an assessment or writing or whatever they're doing. That's the thing that this is, this works for. And so what happens is, is you put your headphones on or your ear pods in, and you're listening again to, uh, you could just go to YouTube for this and yeah. type in okay. binaural beats concentration or, or focus, whatever the thing is. And it'll come up with a bunch of suggestions. And what you're hearing is this sort of pulsing and the pulsing is, and the reason you need headphones on is it's at two different tones in either ear. The reason that matters is because those two different tones can't you, – your 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 ears can't take that. And, and that sounds like a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing So what it ends up doing is it ends up creating – adapting a third virtual tone. That's the tone that triggers the parts of your brain that even more, according to the research, powerfully than the coffeehouse chatter gets you really focused – or energized or relaxed. And there's different tone, different levels for the brainwave. So you can pick the thing you want. There's even like a pre-workout one. So there's all yeah, these like neat brain wave things. Exactly, so if you're interested in tapping that or getting the, the kid's brain senses to be triggered, that's another one that that's, and you mentioned like, well, if the coffee house shadow doesn't work, well, maybe the binaural beats does or, or good old fashioned classical music, who cares? The point is find the thing that works for them and let them use it.
0: Yeah. I've experimented so much with this myself to figure out what helps me focus. It's like, do I want to listen to Enya or Bruce Springsteen or <laughs> no World Beats? Which one? I don't know. depends right. of who I'm in. I can, uh, I found that um, if my, my husband will, if I'm sitting watching, listening to something, like I'm sitting at the table and he's got a TV show on, I can't, I'm basically watching the TV show. But right. If you put a football game on, that's white noise. I can tune out a football <laughs> game or a I think I'm the reverse, game. see? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think it has to do with uh like you said there's it's like the the coffee house noise versus the people at the table next to you having a conversation. It's just it's so specific of a Exactly. You know, like you can you get into the dialogue and you're paying attention to that and not what you're writing and that's really interesting. And and like you said, there's so many different things you can stack. I wanted to ask you. So I'm a runner. Um, there was a, a story that you shared in one of your past interviews about running. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Oh uh, okay. I do so I did run track in high school. Yes, that's whole- what I was getting <laughs> at. Oh, I'm here about all right, that. I understand what you're saying. And I was not a very good runner, which is the ironic part of this story because one of the things that I remember the coach yelling to me was run faster. And I thought to myself back then that okay, I'm trying the best I can here. So when we call, tell kids to try harder and they've reached their max or run faster, that doesn't help. What needs to be done? We talked about the feedback is something much and first of all, much more incrementally better. And I'll give you an example. Okay. You ran. You ran. A, I'm going to make this up. Seven minute mile today. Let's try to make that six minutes and fifty seconds tomorrow. That's something manageable, right? Because if right. I push a little harder, I can probably knock ten seconds off. And cumulatively, you're getting your goal better. So an important uh, distinction, by the way, seven minute mile would be, I think, walking backwards. But you get the idea, right? Um, so I think it's a, important to emphasize that we, you know, when we tell kids to try harder or behave better or run faster, it doesn't help them. That that is not something they can wrap their arms around. So we need mm-hmm. to be able to give them something tangible like let's work for seven minutes today. You worked for six minutes yesterday. And so you start to develop things like a behavior chart that shows the the progress. And this is that small wins thing. You start to show them because they're thinking I can only focus for seven minutes. That's terrible. And you're thinking that's better than the three minutes last week. And when you start to show that kids are very visual, most of them. Uh, And so when they see that, they say, oh, there's this chart that's going up. And that's a very empowering thing because they can begin to take ownership of that. When people have are able to take ownership of something, you start to see them feeling better about themselves and overcoming some of these challenges that we we talk about.
0: Well, and just saying run faster, it's so it's so abstract. What does that mean? Yep. I mean, it's like you're you're running it. A, race, of course you're supposed to run faster. I mean, if it was that easy, you'd be already be doing it right. Yeah, that's yeah it I, comical., yeah, so okay. well, uh, i w- I wanted to ask about that before we wrapped up here. So where can people go to learn more about your work and to connect with you?
1: I always recommend Gaskell M Gaskell, and I'm sure you'll put that in the the show notes um, yes, we will. for Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I have, as I said, three books out uh, on on uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You can find them anywhere. The most recent one is called Radical Principles, and that one really talks about addressing disadvantaged children and working around some of the challenges, the systemic challenges that we face, not just in schools but in general. Yeah. And secondly, uh, the book Leading Schools Through Trauma, which we focused, I think, most on, right. uh, is also there. And that one's great because it gives you like these five-minute interventions and you know these short powerful things that help us really stack and help support children and uh microstrategy magic was my first book that's just a lot of different ideas put together yeah. and uh you can you can find me uh on uh you can just Google my name and you'll see all my articles uh on there as well if you typed in Mike Gaskell articles or uh, smart brief articles you'd see all of that
0: okay well we'll link to all those that MicroStrategy management one sounds interesting uh i like the idea of it sounds like it's more stacking which i love
1: yes and that's a lot of the theme of everything that i bring together is yeah i think a lot of times people get frustrated because they feel like you know i can't really get my arms around or solve a problem because it's too overwhelming and my whole argument is no it all starts in small yet significant steps and these are all things that we can do we just have to be very calculated about that and when we are We see some remarkable results Mm -hmm. that help kids.
0: Well, yeah, I love all that. We'll link to all those in the show notes. So hopefully people can connect with you and learn more about, about some of your work. So thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can connect with Dr. Gaskell. You can check out his books, Radical Principles, Leading Schools Through Trauma and MicroStrategy Magic on Amazon.com. And if you want to use the concept of stacking, to implement executive functioning support in your building, then definitely check out the School of Clinical Leadership. In this program, I give you specific strategies for supporting executive functioning. You can stack one at a time in your therapy sessions, as well as in the way that you support other people who are working with kids in classrooms. To learn more, you're gonna wanna go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. If you found this episode useful, Please leave us a rating and review and let us know about it. And finally, if you have a suggestion for a guest on the show, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, if you know someone who is doing innovative work when it comes to educational leadership, just send me an email at at talktomeatdrkarenspeech.com. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.